The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Hello and welcome to Prospect Barbacast, the only baseball podcast in the world that will never, ever reach its ceiling, ever. I'm Jake Mintz, and that is not Jordan Schusterman. That is not Michael Farron. In fact, I am joined by Eric Longenhagen of Fan Graphs. Eric, hello. This is the sound of my voice. Eric, what is your job title? Lead Prospect Analyst. Did you get to choose that title? Pretty much, I don't think so. I think that it was, uh, it was, it was a thing that Kylie, the title like Kylie picked when he came on, because at the time he tried to do a little um, a version of the old BP have a little staff underneath you model, mm. and it became kind of like unsustainable because. Anyone who was part of that group who was like doing an obviously good job was going to get poached by like a team or some, you know, they'd become full time doing something. Uh, and so like it was me and like Ronit Shaw, who's now the Braves amateur scouting director, I think were like the two. There were a couple other folks. But yeah, it's just like hard to sustain that staff model. Would you, th- you want to be the president of prospect operations? I think I'd, I think. There was a while where Kylie was like, I'm the lead prospect analyst. And so I've wanted to be like the lead prospect analyst. Mm-hmm. But Athelman was like, no, we don't do that. Other people have also said no to that. So, yeah, um, I, I would understand. Got to get in them yeah, that, but. I would understand why that's a no. Um, just I, for everyone listening, Jordan is not here because he has sickness. And Mike Farron is not here this week because he has vacation. And so it is me all alone with someone who knows a lot more about baseball and prospectum than I do. And that is Eric. Eric, it is a pleasure to have you. We have been buddies for quite a long time. Uh, On this show, just so folks know, we are not going to discuss the Sonny Gray signing and the Cardinals decision to open up an old folks home in St. Louis Hmm. with their starting rotation. Oh, there are plenty of those there. Yeah. We'll get to People that on when Friday. When the restaurants close in St. Louis, that's all there is there. People are eating dinner at 4 p.m. in St. Louis. Easy. I'm a St. Louis defender, uh, and I will defend that city to my end. But we're going to start today uh, with Juan Soto. Who uh, have? When's the last time you saw Juan Soto play baseball in person, Eric? Uh, at some point, 
towards the end of this regular season when the Padres rolled through to play the Diamondbacks. And for you as someone who spends most of your days evaluating bad baseball players, relatively, yes, young baseball players, prospects, when you sit down and you watch Juan Soto at a big league stadium, what jumps out to you when your eyes are used to something different? Absolutely. Just the ferocity that his body rotates with. Like the blink of an eye in which his swing ignites and then is finished around the other side of his body is unbelievable. And I first saw Soto, I saw Juan Soto and Ronald Acuna for the first time on the same day on the a Braves backfield in like 20, I don't know, maybe 2017 or 2018. Um, and like physically at the time, Soto was not quite as like muscular and explosive as he would become within like a year and a half, two years. Um, some of that video is on YouTube of Soto. And yeah, like it took us a minute for him to like level up into that space. And some of it happened behind the scenes because he was so injured and played so few minor league games before he was promoted. I forget if it was what it was for him. He and Carter Keeboom were both hurt at the same time. And I think Keeboom's was like a broken leg. I forget what Soto's was, but yeah. Then the next time I saw Soto was at, um, was he with Fredericksburg uh, at Wilmington, I think. And I had just gotten off a plane for like a dual amateur and pro run, like through the Northeast, stopping at home in caddy and whatever. So I get off the plane and I have a million Twitter mentions. And it was because, oh gosh, what was this guy's name? This guy used to write for BP. They fired him over this, uh, like talking shit about Kylie and I, like not going to games. Like as I was getting off of a cross country flight and like hustling to a high, uh, like a high game. <laughs> um, it's like, yeah, the Fangraph guys don't go to games. And it's just like, why is this a thing that anyone has to deal with? And then Keith Law and I spent the rest of that game like stewing over this uh, online kerfuffle and like getting angry about the internet while like a future Hall of Famer was maybe playing right in front of us. And like I was half ass watching it and then underranked him horribly <laughs> on the following, on the following which, hundred. Like, which is like a great example. was distracting. Yeah, Terrible. it's a great example of like the human element sprinkling its way into baseball analysis where and this happens with scouts all the time like if you are seeing a player at the end of a trip versus the beginning of a trip you are less likely to lock into them like I remember talking to a scout when I was in Arizona with you around the World Series when we went to the Fall League game talking to a scout who was like yeah, I have two more days here and then I'm off for three weeks. And like that scout essentially admitted that they were mailing in their final two days of coverage, understandably, because they could see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, it's hard to stay centered and like disciplined and open in a way where stuff is sticking to your brain when it's at the end of a long like at area codes and when area codes has been in at the university of San Diego the last couple of years, and there's just nowhere to hide from the sun there. And by day four or five, like your ability to think about anything other than skin cancer or just like what it's going to feel like to shower 
because of your sunburn, like as bad as you've tried to cover up, like your wrists are just exposed and it's just like all you can think about. And like these kids from the Midwest who you're on like game three or four with, you know, you should be locked into them. This is a really important time of the evaluation period. And especially for those kids from cold weather spots who are never going to see pitching this good ever again in their lives. Well, you know, between now and the draft anyway. If you got to lock in on those dudes and it really is, it really can be challenging. There are times when I cut bait now, like some of it is eyewash when you're just like, you know, you can feel the diminishing returns. You're thinking about what the traffic on the one one is going to be like coming back from Scottsdale. And you're just like, shit, like I should just get out of here. And now, now I do pull the ripcord sometimes when I know it's like not productive. I've got way more stuff that I could go do. So, right. Like you have more leeway to do that than someone who's working for a team who's got to file a report on every single player. Um, Just to put the conversation back to Soto, I think for most of the baseball media, when the Soto trade happened, and I'm included in this, I looked at it from the perspective of if you are trading away a player like this, you lose. You cannot win when the decision is that. Now, time has passed, and I think it's more complicated than that. When you look back on the Soto trade from 2022, what do you see? Hmm. Just a review for people. The deal was Juan Soto, along with Josh Bell, which is hilariously relevant because it did up the package. Juan Soto... And Josh Bell for C.J. Abrams, Mackenzie Gore, Robert Hassel, James Wood, Jarlin Susanna, and Luke Voigt, which is the Luke Voigt element of it is also outstanding. The dude was on the Padres bound for the playoffs and was just sent into purgatory for the 2022 Nats. I guess I just see like that group that, that you know, the A.J. Preller group being so hungry and aggressive that they can be somewhat reckless. Um, Was it reckless? No, it's not. It's not reckless. I think like the, their 2023 season wasn't their 2023 season was so weird. And like, I can't speak to all the discontent with Bob Melvin and like what may or may not be going on in their locker room with like, because you just assembled all of these like capital D dudes. But in your mind, the process was pure. No, that's even if the result was not. Not the right word. Process is definitely not the right word to use when it comes to the Padres. The Padres, <laughs> I'm sure the, and I'm not a quote unquote trust the process guy because the operative word there is trust. And so that's just a cult, that's a religion. They, they're still ultimately asking you to have faith in a thing. Uh, you should have a process. The Padres make decisions. You know, they're, they have like a brain trust. And I think of the way the Padres do things as like someone, as like people playing Jenga. And your farm system and pitching depth and all that stuff is like the stable bottom of the Jenga. And you can only have so many like Machado, Soto, Bogarts, like let's trade pitching depth. Let's, you know, the Padres don't develop pitching in uh, a way that good teams do. Not really. 
And so like, you're always going to be playing with fire if you're them, because like the chances of your season being undone by a rash of injuries is just higher than the guardians or the Dodgers or like these teams that have a guy who was a sixth rounder out of a small school. Who's now fine. There's like, no, Emmett, fine to throw in there. there's no Emmett Sheehan. In no, San the Diego. Padres do not have Emmett Sheehan. It is. They don't have Emmett Sheehan. Is it the meme of the Bugatti in the driveway of the crappy house? It kind of is. It kind of is. There are definitely elements of that at play there. But the Padres is just so damn good at like picking out who's good and who's not that like to this point they've been able to sustain it. It feels like the, you know, the DiCaprio character in Catch Me If You Can or, you know, the Jordan Belfort character uh, in Wolf of Wall Street where it's just like, how long can this go on before Sam Bankman free? Like, it's not that fraudulent <laughs> because like I do think. Preller and Logan White and David Post and like Chris Kemp and like the people who run the, you know, who decide what players the Padres pick. They know how to identify talent. That's a real thing. And that is the thing when we're talking about these like trust the process teams and stuff, whether it's baseball or other sports, a lot of those folks don't know how to pick a player. Like they pick Jaleel Okafor. They trade Drew Holiday for Nerlens Noel. Like they're not good at deciding who's a good player and who's not. That's ultimately the most important thing. Like Bryce Young is maybe okay, but like you know, Iki Aquanu isn't, and Terrence Marshall isn't, and Jonathan Mingo isn't, and so like Bryce Young can't be good. Um, so yeah, like the Soto thing. I mean, he's so exceptional in a lot of different ways. He's a terrible defensive player. They're still going to get quite a haul for him, and I think like given the right situation with the right trade partner, I think that they can get what they want and need like as a team. I think you can like trade him to the Yankees and get like a ton so, of pitching that you need. Let's um, be, let me be irresponsible with it for a second. Let's, so yeah, let's go through it. We can definitely speculate on some. So of this I wrote I this last week at foxsports.com, a website you can read in addition to fangraphs.com, another website you can read two good websites. Uh, I picked five, potential trade partners and instead of I don't love building out specific names because I think it's such a crapshoot because you don't know how the Padres um, kind of see certain players in other organizations higher or lower to me it's like who could be the main one or two pieces in a potential return right that like who has things that the Padres would want now that he has so little yeah team control left you are talking about probably like two or three pieces max correct he is a free agent at the end of the year the three kind of pillars of this that i was thinking it was like number one it's important to understand that the padres are going to get less back from whatever team they trade soto to than what they gave up to the nats that's just a year and a half of service time and the desperation the padres were in so that's important to understand Number two, San Diego is going to want some sort of big league controllable piece in return that's already there because they intend to compete in 2024, right? Yes. And then three, there are certain teams that won't be interested at all because they don't want to pay Soto the $30 million in arbitration that he's owed this season. So if you have a team that's cutting payroll, Minnesota, Tampa, or a super cheap team like Cleveland, Arizona with their TV deal scenario, right, is in that bucket as well. I think there are teams that you can more or less cross out. So I'm just the 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 most obvious teams, in my opinion, are LA and Seattle. 
just because of the big league pitching depth they have. Let's start with and the I Dodgers. I think Seattle's got some TV stuff too that maybe yeah. pulls them toward the back of this pack. But you're right in terms of potential fit. Um, Seattle has been able to churn out pitching from within pretty consistently to have Castillo, Gilbert, Kirby, Miller, and then a combination of like, hopefully back from TJ mid-year, Robbie Ray. You've got Marco Gonzalez still. Brian Wu. You've got Emerson Hancock and Brian Wu. You know, you can afford to part with a piece or two from that group. Right. What about the Dodgers? Dodgers, I mean, God damn, like, can you imagine that actually happening? Like what it would take for this Padres front office, like how hard they'd have to swallow to do this. But yeah, like the Dodgers obviously have the payroll flexibility. They have cash uh, and, you know, prospects, especially as, you know, pitching depth. I would, you know, if I'm the Padres in this situation, I'm trying to bloodlet them. I'm trying to like take as much, I'm trying to take as many of these young arms back from them as I possibly can to, you know, uh, like if I'm AJ Preller, if I'm AJ Preller, I'm like, look, you understand how painful it is for us to trade Soto to you. And to meet that price that is going to be higher for you because of the optics of it. Does, does LA like would LA part with Bobby Miller or no, probably not. Yeah, they would for yeah for, for a, a year of Soto, Soto. for yeah. a year of Soto. You think so? Yeah, yeah. In pitching, dude, like, yes, absolutely, yes. You can build the package around him for sure. Go yeah. for it. You want Miller, Ryan Pepiot, and uh, you know Gavin, one of Gavin Stone or Nick Frasso. Done. Done. Okay. Let's move down the list. Uh the Yankees. What does that take? It starts with Clark Schmidt or Michael King. I think you can. This is the one where if you're the Padres, you get like the biggest. This is like the biggest, most uh, depth oriented package you can get where you're just like. Give me six taking, pitchers. <laughs> yeah, just like, you know. Take a shot on any of these guys. Luis Gill is one option you're left and is coming off a TJ. The Yankees are going to say no if you tack him onto the end. It doesn't like you have your foundation of the return package, and then you're just like, give me Yo Andres Gomez, give me Luis Gill, like give me Will Warren, give me Sean Boyle, who you give me Randy Vasquez. Yeah, just like anyone who dare the Yankees to say no to a Juan Soto trade. Uh, that, you know, like, could you imagine if, if Yanni Brito and stuff, right. like, could you imagine like Rosenthal comes out, Joel Sherman comes out and they're like the Juan Soto trade was scuttled because the Yankees wouldn't give up Randy Vasquez. Like that's not happening, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You abs- Yeah. And you could argue it's a, you know, a different team might do the same thing with like, you know, sexy DSL prospects or whatever, who, you know, have a chance to be like a franchise player and the team who needs to compete right now isn't like twiddling their thumbs waiting for four years for that guy to develop. So, but yeah, like in this situation, the Yankees are so good at developing pitchers. Okay. And like, so like they, it's a situation where they, I think would feel free to hit the gas a little bit. If it makes, you know, means making a trade of this magnitude 
uh, when like the vibe around their org is what it is, where like it seems like Brian Cashman, who I have a ton of respect and admiration for, just simply for being in his role for as long as he has, like that enough is, you know, that alone is enough to just be like, hey, dude, like, you know, good job, you know, respect. But when like Chris Russo, when like that guy seems to be getting to you, that's you seem desperate. And I, you know, I don't think Everson Pereira is going to hit at all. Um, I, you know, that outfield mix aside from Aaron Judge in New York right now is like Florial, whose swing looked different at the end of the year. Maybe there's a chance he has like no. a Jose they don't trust. type of. They don't trust him. He hits, you know, 200 with 30 bombs and plays center field like Jose Siri or whatever. Um, but like Florial and Pereira, like I think it's there's a better chance for uh, Ozzy Cabrera to like bounce back and be an everyday yeah. left fielder than I do think like Pereira is good. So yeah, like I think the Yankees' need and and sense of desperation there combined with their core competency of developing pitching, which might suggest they'd be willing to part with depth more so than other teams. And then you have that Luis Gill, Yoendris Gomez. These guys are like kind of out of options. They're it's weird to try to use multiple forty man spots on those dudes. Uh, yeah, like just take a shot on every, you know, all those, as many of those guys as you can, when you're the Padres and you yeah. just have Darvish Musgrove and a bunch of guys who aren't very good, you know, I, th- I think that's the thing that you, so I think that, that Venn diagram, that Venn diagram of like core competency, elite at developing pitching and potential willingness to pay Juan Soto $30 billion and competitive right now is LA, Seattle and New York. And I just I worry this is the Gino Suarez trade with Arizona a sign that Seattle is clearing money to do something else, or is it a sign that they need to cut payroll? Like I'm not sure which is true. Who else beyond who else beyond those three teams fits either of those buckets? Well, I know that you you know the other one you mentioned was the Cubs, right? Um, Cubs and the Braves are the other two. Yeah. Oh, the Braves. That's right. So yeah, I don't know that the Braves. The Braves farm farm system is thin because they just rush their good guys like up to the big leagues. Yeah. Um, I don't. The, what the Braves do with the rest of their offseason is going to be fascinating to me because they still have twenty five percent of their forty man to play with. <laughs> so the Braves just get to have like twenty five percent of their big league roster is just like TBD, and obviously they have a an everyday guy position player wise entrenched at like virtually every position, but for left field. Um, do they have quite the same like group that would entice San Diego? Like, I kind of don't think so. It would take more, you know, than I think they have on the pitching side to like get a deal like this done with the Cubs. Yeah. You know, the Cubs, what the Cubs got good at um, late, like after Theo and that group kind of left. They got better at developing pitching in a certain way. They got better at develop, developing velocity. Right. Um, San Diego, based on their taste for the types of pitching prospects, they like draft and acquire. So like they signed Musgrove and Musgrove's great, but you know what I'm going to talk about, he's, he's not good. So Musgrove, Ryan Weathers, uh, Mackenzie Gore, Adrian Morejon, um, Robbie Stone's Patino, right? But Patino is the opposite of this. Like, San Diego is not good at understanding fastball shape. It doesn't mm. seem. 
Mm-hmm. Like fastball playability is a thing that like a lot of their guys have round down fastballs where they're throwing really hard. Fastball doesn't play as well as the velocity would otherwise indicate. Are you saying the um, Cubs are the opposite of that? The Cubs, the Cubs have guys like that in droves because they're good at developing velocity, but maybe not not so much other parts of of pitching. So there might be guys here who you know the rest of the industry is like lukewarm on. Like the Twins would never want, um, like the Twins covet a Joe Ryan, where all he has is that fastball. They would be less inclined to take like a Ryan Weathers type guy in like a trade. Yeah. Um, uh, so like, but I wonder, you know, is Javier Assad the type of guy where there's like big velo and the, and the Cubs think they could stretch him out? Or Daniel Palencia, or you know some of these like there are lots of hard throwing dudes in the Cubs system. Ben Brown's fastball shape is a little bit better than this, but the plane is maybe not good. Mm-hmm. You know, like Wesneski, because you stretch him out. Um, there's so, enough there. Yeah, yeah. There's enough here that I I wonder if they could if they could do it if they could take back like you know a, one of the young outfielders like you get Owen Casey back. You get you know Kevin Alcantara who's sort of running dry up options because of how early he had to be put on. It's like time for him to sink or swim soon. You know, could you theoretically, if you're San Diego, get the right guy back Yeah. to replace Soto in the corner outfield with, you know, a Casey or a Canario or a Alcantara or one of these guys, uh, Christopher Morel, or, you know, and then a bunch of pitchers. That seems, that seems like a better fit too, I think, then, than some of the other teams we talked about. So I would Two put more- the Cubs and the Yankees at the top of the list. Cubs and Yankees at the top of the list. Two more teams. I There's Mets buzz. I'm skeptical. They just spent the deadline refurbishing the farm system. I don't understand why they would turn that into a year of Juan Soto at this point. It doesn't it, track. They just pay. Just give him, give him a bag of money in 365 days, right? Yes, you could, I guess. Right. Yeah. Like, is is – San Diego's uh, financial problems, are they severe enough that that is – If can you entice their ownership by like with money somehow? Mm. Like where you're paying – I don't know. I don't know. That would be the one thing that they could leverage maybe more than other teams besides the Dodgers. Just Juan Soto for $100 million in cash considerations? Yeah, like make put it on the league to like approve it and, you know – an unprecedented sort of deal where they're just like sending money to the Padres new con- collection of owners who like want to run it more like a business perhaps. than like Peter Seidler, who was just trying to win before he died, it seems like. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that would be interesting, but I'm not sure they, I guess they, they do have like, I think the Mets have the horses to make a big, big deal with a team that is like a more traditional seller. Yeah. You know, like if the, Royals, you know, had someone good to trade or whatever, um, that they could make or the A's, right? The A's, yep, yeah. Like if the A's want had another deal to make this offseason, goddamn, like Manny Pena. I'm sure the Mets have a Manny Pena lying around. The fuck kind of trade was that? (laughs) Last one is the last one. The last one is the Giants. I here's my my thoughts on Soto just generally and how it. I think it fits in with the Giants and the Dodgers. I think Soto happens first. Or sorry, let me back that up. I think Otani happens first. 
And whoever doesn't get Otani is backed oh. into a Soto pivot where if the Dodgers get Otani, the Giants then need, in quotes, to then make a, a move in response. And then the price for Soto goes up and their desperation for Soto goes up. Do you I think they, so. Does that make sense? What, one does. or the other. Like one or the other will happen first and then force other teams into being more aggressive for the non-Soto for for whichever one doesn't go first. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I feel like San Francisco is super calculated in a way where they, you know, whoever makes a trade for Juan Soto is going to be someone who's like motivated or inclined to be a little extra. And that doesn't strike me as San Francisco's MO. They feel especially, very like bold and calculated to me. Especially now that Farhan, their president of baseball operations, got an extension. Like he was lame duck. He was expiring at the end of the year. But now that they extended him, he doesn't have to be as desperate as maybe we thought he did. Um, I wonder what they'd want back. This is another one where like they could conceivably get a replacement back where they're just like give us Luis Matos and and like pitching somehow. But but it's also going to cost more if you want to stay in division, right? Like it's the same issue that we were talking about with the Dodgers without all the baggage. Any other teams before we take a break? Not off the top, not off the top of my head that I that I can really conceive of. I wonder if Texas is still like if so. Let's say Texas is a big player for Otani. Hmm. Um, could they conceivably do it? I mean, obviously there's like connective tissue there between Preller and that org. They're not in the same league. They have you know spare parts. It would seem like Ezekiel Duran, I think, is a damn good player who like just didn't play at all in the playoffs for them until uh, Adolis got hurt um where's soda playing i don't know that would be one where they like trade you know evan carter in the deal or they you know he's the dh and or they trade leody in the deal and evan carter plays center field and like soto plays left or you know like i just think soda's a dh slash left fielder so you know yeah one more dumb one and detroit yeah, sure. I mean, I don't know how um, – it would be interesting for sure to see it happen. Yeah, I, I think Detroit is on the come up. And as far as, you know, if there's anywhere that they have depth, it's pitching, especially with like Scoobles seems healthy, Mize is coming back, Manning I felt like t- took a step forward. I think Reese Olsen is real. Top 100 prospect at Fangraphs last, you know, February, Reese Olsen. Um, yeah, that seems, I think if you're like picking out dark horse candidates that they're a fair one. And then I don't know, like, could you, could you say Pittsburgh is one for the same (laughs) reason? Like, I don't think that the, the ownership there would ever want to do a thing like this, but like, they're not, they're not paying any single human being $30 million a year. Pittsburgh and Cincinnati would seem to be like the tigers of the NL where, that both central divisions feel wide open in a way that I think is going to be so much fun next year. That's true. Uh, However, I think, I think since he just doesn't have the arms for it, like San Diego is going to want pitching back. And since he has the same issue where they don't have enough pitching to make that kind of deal. Yeah. Um, They'd have to be super hot for like, you know, chase petty or whatever. (laughs) Uh, Let's take a break. And when we get back, Eric, we will talk about the Jackson Cheerio contract buzz and, 
the risk reward of paying someone who has never been in the major leagues a whole lot of money to play baseball. And welcome back to Prospect Barbecue's Jake Mintz, Eric Longenhagen of Fangraphs. Eric, what do John Singleton, Scott Kingery, Eloy Jimenez, Evan White, and Luis Robert have in common? They are baseball hitters who at one point many people many people many people thought were gonna be really good. And, and not they were, they were given money before they proved to be quite good. Bingo. Those are the five players who signed long-term deals before making their major league debuts. Corbin Carroll got a big deal after a handful of games at the end of last season. Similar thing happened with Evan Longoria back when he was a rookie. But the reason I bring this up is because a gentleman by the name of Jackson Churio, who is a, a consensus top three prospect in baseball. Okay. Mm-hmm. Top five? Yeah, he's he's way up there. He's, you know, he'd be a top 10 prospect in virtually any, you know, scenario. He's quite good. Yes. Uh, there are rumors that the Milwaukee Brewers are r- discussing and are somewhat, cl- they, were cl- they are close enough to a deal that Ken Rosenthal wrote about it, is I guess how I would describe it. <laughs> how I would describe it. Bob Nightingale did not write about it. Ken Rosenthal wrote about it. And so I have some inclination that this is going to happen. What are the risks and rewards of such a decision, specifically for the Brewers where they're at in their cycle of contention? The rewards are that you start to, if this guy and others like him in the org are actually monster impact players, then you have a foundational piece of your team in place at a, uh, for a team like the Brewers, a manageable dollar amount for the foreseeable future. And you can start to stack these guys like the Braves have, where it's just like Acuna, Albies, Riley, you know, just like those parts of your team are, uh, for like the medium future, so young and talented and cost friendly that you have like, so you're just free to build great teams around them. It just becomes so much easier to have like, you know, to pay Reynaldo Lopez for a little while, you know, trade for a ton of pieces for Aaron Bummer. Like you're not worried about platooning. You just have a plug and play everyday star center fielder at like a reasonable cost. The downside is the five names are just read out. Right. Like the risk is injury and obviously all kinds of stuff that you can't foresee. Although in Eloy's case, like Eloy was hurt a lot already. Like it was part of why you go back to the comments on the top 100 list from like when Eloy was last on there. And it's just like, why is Eloy so so low? And it's because Eloy weighs 270 pounds and has terrible feet. Like his feet and lower body are constantly hurt. Like it's scary, but yeah, it's, you know, there are a number of risks, obviously, that like are person to person, whether it's injury or here's a ton of money, young young man, uh, stay, you know, 
keep it together, buddy. You know, like it's really hard. Milwaukee maybe seems like the place, a place that's relatively easy to do that compared to, you know, if I were uh, like 22 year old me getting tens of millions of dollars and like living in Philadelphia, like good luck, Eric, who knows what that would have been like. But, um, but then the other one is like major league pitching is fucking nasty. Which, which is Evan White. That's Evan White, yes. Evan White, That's who the Evan Mariners... Evan White and Kingery. Kingery's a little different, in my opinion, because his body changed so much. Like, he was so built and rock hard and stiff that he was unable yeah. to get... He, he, was, he just was too stiff for his own good at the big league level. He was too ripped. And then by the time yeah. he got down to a better frame... Joe Girardi basically, you know, mind fucked him into being a bad big leaguer. Where Evan White got to the right. big leagues and just couldn't hit a fastball in the strike zone. Yeah. Uh, and so Kingery has like pitch recognition issues as well. But like those are things that you can only truly get a real sense for their severity when he's seeing nothing but big league sliders all of a sudden. Right. And like, that's like that's the thing with Churio. Churio could be a perennial six-win center fielder. Totally plausible. Yes. Churio could get to the big leagues and see a Spencer Strider slider and be like, holy shit, bye. Like, I yeah. cannot do this. Or not even, Spencer Strider's a bad example. He could see like a Dean Kramer slider and be like, I can't touch this. And we don't know that until he gets to the big leagues. And that, to me, is why that list I just read, those five guys, it's four misses, Singleton, big miss, Evan White, big off miss. Off-field stuff. Off stuff, but still, that's a miss. Singleton, yes. Kingery a miss, Evan White a miss, Eloy, in my opinion, a miss. And then Robert is a, they nailed it, but nailed they it. weren't good enough of an organization to capitalize on the rest of it for long enough. And that's just a Ken Williams, like, you know, Rakan problem. But to me, the track record here is bad. We have four out of five. It is a small sample size. Would you argue for a move like this based upon what we know? I think, yeah, like. Or would you just wait? Like, can't you just wait until he literally has like a 10 game sample? Three weeks. Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe, you, yeah, three, like three weeks. Of this guy having, you know, I just pulled up Synergy and like Jackson Churio had just a 27% chase rate against, you know, sliders just to pick one potential issue here. Like that's very good. Um, and like if I, you know, isolate the other thing that's, you know, you want to isolate is fastball velocity. This guy's facing, you know, 88, 92 a lot, even at AAA. And like, what does it look like when he's facing nothing but 95 plus and, you know, Synergy has him hitting 400 against 95 plus, albeit, you know, just a 70 pitch sample, which is like too small to really learn anything from. But yeah, like, I guess I think you could wait like two to three weeks and, and maybe feel a little bit better about it. Sometimes you are betting on the person like. Uh, like Corbin Carroll is a good example, right? Yeah. Where the did the Diamondbacks really need the month long sample at the end of next year to know that he was the guy? No, no. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a calculated risk. 
I think it will probably be okay. Um, and like, you know, potentially meaningful for the franchise to like have a player this talented who is like locked up for the long haul. Um, there is a little bit of hit tool risk here, just generally, just like there's in zone swing and miss against fastballs, just looking at it here, but like the ratio of balls in play to swinging strikes is very good. Like there are points of contact in the, the parts of the zone where this guy is also swinging and missing. Like all this stuff seems fine to me. Um, so I, I would be in, you know, maybe there's, there's a little bit of an issue with like pitches in the lower third of the zone. Like you can't quite get to just like kind of looking at the stuff as we're sitting here talking. Milwaukee has been through a version of this sort of before where it's like, destiny here is great, 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 great. And then all of a sudden uh, there are like real issues there that make him virtually unplayable. Like Kessney hero is worth two and a half war across this first half season after he was nothing but great in the minors. And, you know, even then there were warning signs that this was not going to work long-term. Um, so, but yeah, I think I'd be in like, if you know, the brewers called me and were advising me that it was going to be some deal like in the ballpark of some of the names that we've mentioned here, where it's not, you know, not a hundred million. We're talking about like 60, 70, 80 million, like in there. Like, yeah, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. And he, so he's represented by Beverly Hills uh, sports council where it's not like a rinky dink agent situation that has to capitalize on the money. Like they're going to advise Cheerio to the fullest, I would imagine. And if I'm hit, like I struggle to fault kids like him for taking the money. And this goes to like the Ozzy Albee situation and the Acuna situation, right? Where it's like, if that money's in front of you and you're a big leaguer, you take that money. Like that's more money than you or I will ever see in our entire lives. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, my OnlyFans hasn't really gotten off the ground at all. So you want to promote that on here? Yeah, it's Eric's Body Toenail at OnlyFans.com. I love the idea of you just doing OnlyFans where it's you're reading out prospect lists in the nude. Essentially. Yeah, where and there's like my but, chest main is out. Yeah, there's like no like you're not doing any sexual action. You're just right. naked reading your prospect lists word for word. Yeah. I could maybe I should do something like that. I think it would be good for purposes of representation. Yeah, to have like a Burt Reynolds type, uh, you know. Wow, like what <laughs> you just put yourself in Burt Reynolds's stratosphere? That is and a Joe man. Namath too. Joe Namath, like you need I Jim Palmer. Not since yeah, Jim Palmer. Yeah, but uh, yeah, like there's um. It's funny that you mentioned Jim Palmer because that is actually like there there is someone I know who like that is their type is just like, oh my God, like Jim Palmer. I was so hot for Jim Palmer. That was my mom's first crush. Okay. And she grew yeah. up in Baltimore in the 70s. Like But I make Jim Palmer look like a steel, like with the amount of body hair. Um the process of compiling a prospect list. Your yeah. I would say your major responsibility as an employee of Fangraphs is to spearhead the 30 prospect lists on the site. You do things a little differently in that many other sites will release a top 10 
or a top 30 where you find it necessary to rank ev- rank and review every relevant, and we can define what that term is, every relevant prospect in a team's organization. So instead of being like, here are the top 30 players in the Reds org, you'll be like, here, I'm just clicking on the Reds. You'll be like, here are the top 46 players that the Reds have in their minor league system. Here are the top 41 Blue Jays prospects. And if you click on something like the A's, here are the top three A's prospects. No, I'm kidding. Um, The A's number was 28. Uh, My first question, why do you do it this way? I think um, some of what the things that are different about how I'm doing it relative to other publications have to do with the internet, allowing for flexibility that like printing a physical book uh, does not. Yeah. And I do think, you know, from a philosophical standpoint that like just having a top X number is like totally arbitrary. It doesn't make any sense. It is counterproductive for the, the discourse. Not that like there's any hope for that anyway, but like it is counterproductive for the, the online discourse when the fixation is on numerals and like the way a prospect is ranked rather than the way a prospect is evaluated and having a top 30, which is usually what it is, or a top 10, you know, with others or whatever it is, um, is like counterproductive in, in that sense where it's just totally arbitrary. These teams have the quality of each team's farm systems, uh, very, um, wildly enough that you know when you're writing up anyone who is actually a quote-unquote prospect you're going to have a high end where there are some teams who have 50 plus and a low end where other teams have like 20 guys who you know uh actually have like a favorable big league evaluation and highlighting the gap in you know and the the curve like the bell curve really uh of farm system depth and quality is an important part of this job. And I think it's important, you know, when you're, if I'm trying to replicate as best I can on my own, essentially, um, you know, with the help of Tess Taruskin, who is a freelance contributor at our at our site, like it's just me and like Tess, who has like a full-time job and a husband and a dog and like, you know, um, is like just a freelancer. So like as far as full-time employees who are writing words about prospects at our site, it's just me. And I'm trying to like replicate the things a pro scouting department would care about. Right. So um, like as an example for uh, maybe a reason why I do this, totally random example, Brandon Birdsell. Okay. You ranked him 32nd on the Cubs list last year. 32nd. Yeah. You had him evaluated as a 40 when we can talk about what that means in a second. Brandon Birdsell is a top 10 prospect in a number of systems in baseball, probably. Bad system, five, probably five bad systems. He's a top 10 prospect, right? Yes. Yeah, as a guy who's like throwing throwing strikes up through double A, who like is totally competent uh, and has like the repertoire depth to start and is 23 and is like inching closer to the big leagues. He's better than Darren Baker. He's yes, he's probably like, you know, he was a 40 for last update. I think you could make like a strong argument that he should just be like a 45 or something like that. 
or that through volume, he's like a 40 plus or something like that. Right. This is just, um, as I'm yeah. just saying, this is a random example to try and illustrate for people. Some the of them are like, at play. Felix Bautista is one where there are, at a certain point, the last time I saw Felix Bautista in the minors before he was a big leaguer was at double A Bowie. And he almost killed three different people with like errant 98 mile an hour fastballs. But because, you know, he is built like an absolute monster and has elite arm strength. You know, even before we talk about the context of him going from old Orioles regime to new Orioles regime and what that might do for him, uh, he's just someone who I want to like have on there at the bottom as like a this guy has a chance to pop because his raw stuff is so good, raw stuff so good. Um, and um, there are a million guys like him who never turn into anything, but you want to be on them in case they do. And like Bautista did like in a profound way, Camilo Doval, same thing. Um, and then you have like the Wandis and Charles types of the world where it's just like, okay, we're waiting for this. It doesn't happen. Gregory Santos is another one where like right. it happens in like a sort of mid relief way. So um, just yeah. on the 2021 Orioles list, this is before Bautista debuted. Um, this is, he debuted what in 22? I believe so, yeah. So then I should do the, the 2022 Orioles list. Where did you have Felix Bautista ranked? Let's see. You had him ranked 34th as a 35 plus, right? And like, that's because like you said, he might have killed someone. But there are orgs in which that profile would put him much higher on a list just because they don't have anyone that can even resemble that type of ceiling. You right, know, you're just, yeah, like you just want to be on that guy. I don't know if Felix Bautista would have been on like the true test of whether or not like I've been doing this long enough now that you can start to review my work. Like I became full time in 2016. So uh, like you can actually go back to there's been enough time has passed to say, OK, like how did this go initially? Like, is this process working? Am I doing a better job than the other publications by like having a process? like this. And so I don't know if Felix Bautista was like on anybody else's prospect list from that year. Like that would be the thing to actually look at um, as like a, a determining variable as whether or not like I should be doing it like this. A bunch of these other guys, you know, people listening to this may or may not consider them relevant, but like the people who were around Felix Bautista on this prospect list were like Yaki Rivera who the Marlins traded to the Orioles in, I forget which deal, if it was like Tanner Scott or whatever. Brian Baker, meaningful. Logan Gillespie, meaningful. Carlos Tavera, still maybe meaningful, but like as an up-down deaf guy, was in the fall league this year, really good changeup. Everything else is not great. Keegan Gillies, Tyler Nevin. You know what I mean? Like, ah, like some of these guys, it's not, you know, it doesn't really matter, but... It's going to be like, it's going to be a mix of, of both, but, but yeah, no more arbitrary endpoints for where the farm system quality ends. Uh, do away with that. And the timeline of me doing them is also like unique relative to the other publications where like I'm starting now. Um, like I've been taking notes and evaluating players, obviously like all year and into the fall instructs fall league, the whole thing. Uh, you know, Lido and stuff, you know, other winter leagues on video for sure. Um, but like my process goes like deep into May, June of the following year, because like 
well, number one, it's like, it's just not possible for me to get all 30 done only during the off season. And, you know, if you're a pro scouting department, what you care about is like the trade deadline, you know, you care about making trades during the off season. Sure. And you want to have evaluations, uh, you know, that you feel good about during that time. But, uh, like you know, for me, I would like if you are 20% less thorough and I sure. could just have everything by opening day. I would, I don't know if 20% gets, gets me there. I think that you want to have evaluation and list making that goes at the very least through April, like to go in, to drop into Florida for extended spring training and see a bunch of players during that time who had to, to that point not set foot on American soil yet means that my Marlins, Astros, Nationals, Cardinals, and Mets lists in May from having seen extended spring training and the Florida State League in April is going to be way, way better than a list I would have done in January. And all you have to do is wait like a couple more months. The list I would have done in January would have been I think more than 20% worse than the list that, that gets like scouted in April and written in May. Um, it's just, it's so when like an outsized portion now of the minor league player population is, is centered in the Dominican Republic because we have just fewer domestic minor league affiliates now, seeing as many of those guys as they become more readily available to like see, I think really alters the complexion of your list. Like, so on my Diamondbacks list from this last cycle, it was one of the ones I did toward the end. And it like gave me the opportunity to like really see their extended spring training group and get reports out of the Dominican Republic as like those guys started to play down there. And like one of their big dogs down there got traded to the Mets in the fan deal. And Yancel Luis, who wasn't on any other publications prospect list, like at all, um, at the time I wrote up the Diamondbacks list, was just like clearly a top three or five guy in their system by that point. And so I think, yeah, like the old Alton Brown saying, your patience will be rewarded. Uh, and like, this is one of those things that's just like facilitated by the fact that like, I don't have a, a book to publish in March, yeah. you know, that people will buy in April. And I think that like, I don't know, you know, I haven't talked to Craig about this, like Craig, you know, um, Goldstein who runs BP and I haven't talked to JJ Cooper about this, who, you know, runs BA, but I, you know, what the bang for their buck is on like printed material. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, like I still see people like they have baseball America prospect handbooks for sale at the Arizona fall league games. The, all that information is a year old. Um, and it's like, you know, 10 days, two weeks or so before like BA starts putting out fresh top tens that like people are still buying these BA handbooks and running around folly games with them. Like people like to have a physical thing in their hand. I totally understand that. Yeah. Um, you know, physical media is an important thing to, to, I think produce, um, and to own when you want to support somebody, especially like in a digital age when stuff could just disappear. If, you know, David Appleman, something happens to him tomorrow and, someone else buys fan graphs and they're just like, Hey, we're mothballing this. And now AI is going to write our prospect lists. Um, you know, all this stuff might go away, but like, um, Oh dude, an AI prospect list would be so bad. Do you think it would be bad? Or do you think, I think, there are, 
<laughs> I think if you okay, let's do this and then we'll be done. If you could uh, synergize it with synergy and have it read all the info in there, I think it could be fine. I am skeptical that AI can read the biomechanical information. Uh, you are. <laughs> I think right now thing, that's the thing it's doing the most. Maybe AI that I know how to you know work with like definitely like because yeah. I'm so specialized now at, like doing this that uh, I don't know like but um, but no dude like Craig Breslow just told me at the at GM meetings like. You know, the question I asked him was something to the effect of, I read an article that you're quoted in 10 years ago about you assessing the, the mechanics of your own delivery. How has, how did you do it then? And how has that changed? And he just volunteered, like, we show high speed video to a visual algorithm. And so without putting those little, you know, like mocap dots on yeah. people's bodies, we can assess their biomechanics just like with high quality video and like i have that you know he said that in front of a dozen reporters and me and so yeah like i think this has been going on for a while dude i think like um since i think the astro science stealing stuff was facilitated by visual real-time ai um you know seeing the signs that catchers were putting down and like deciphering the pitch uh you know you could you can't have a Huawei phone in the United States, but like around the time <clears throat> that that stuff was being uh, unearthed, it was reported in like one of the Boston newspapers. I think that like the phone in question being used to film the dugout was like a Huawei phone and they gave the model and all that. And like that phone just has software on board that can do that. You put, you know, you put the, turn the camera on and put the piece of fruit on the table. This is their demo. You put a piece of fruit in front of the camera and like it tells you what kind of fruit it is like you know if you're making signs for a pitch at, you know there are only so many possible outcomes like it's going to be pretty quick before that thing deciphers what pitches come so i think i think that ai looking at video is a thing that has been being it's being being wow it's been used in baseball for i think longer than the general public knows about um i think so i think so but that's kind of tinfoil hatty of me maybe um but but yeah dude like i'll send you a, a an example like there are third-party uh companies that like teams outsource some of this analysis to like they'll send high-speed video to the third-party company and the third-party company will do the whole you know stick figure man set up yeah. overlaid on the the so pitcher's delivery on the, of the high speed video, the Wake Forest Bridge seminar. Are you familiar with that? Kind, yeah, but I've never, yeah, I've never been there, but I kind of know what you're talking about. So I'm emceeing it this weekend. Like I'm headed down to Wake Forest to, like, be right. the the host of ceremonies or whatever. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I and I've been digging through all of the people who are speaking, and there are people doing kind of what you're talking about, like private consulting for teams to kind of synthesize the information that teams are collecting so that teams don't have to do all of it in-house. Great. <laughs> um, yeah, the um, it doesn't surprise me. Like, I know – I feel the gap between 
team's understanding of players in like this particular realm growing, like between what I am able to do on my own, like with my little laptop and I have a high speed camera too, but it's more for subjective analysis and looking at trends in grip, you know, pitch grip types. And, you know, like, especially when a guy gets traded or you have amateur video of a guy and now he's in an org that has clearly changed him to kind of see trends along organizational lines in that regard. Um, but, uh, but I have, you know, so much high speed video and so much of it. Is, I have a lot of big league video too, from going to chase field, just on a ticket that I buy sitting in the scout section or right behind it, like in that section, I've gotten in trouble one time. So there's a Yankee scout who thought I was a scout who had a camera I wasn't supposed to have and like ratted me out to fucking security. And um, then security is like, you're, you're, you're here taking video of the game. You're not allowed to do that. And I'm just like, should I say I'm a media member? I'm not here on a credential. I'm just like on a ticket. But yeah, go to the Fangraph's YouTube page and find the playlist of uh, slow motion, big leaguer mechanics. Uh, if you're still listening to this, like all that's shot with at a thousand frames per second. Like this is the type of stuff that yeah. teams are using. The Cubs specifically, the Red Sox I've seen, the Red Sox have like their scouts and cross checkers on the amateur side have that camera. The Yankees do too. The Diamondbacks do. Um, the Guardians have Edgertronic, which shoots at two, th- 2,000 frames. Um, the Cubs have, you know, Pro Scout, Pro Scout here in Arizona who um, has a camera like that that he like, you know, uses on the backfield. So they're doing pro scouting evaluation with like this high speed video. But yeah, dude, it's like, I'm trying to like elevate my process to the most I can do. And that is like the most me. And it does end up being an absolute load. And sometimes it's like not good for me, how much work I'm doing. And I'm trying to rein that in a little bit, I think, because like, as I get older, the physical tool I feel as a result of that has started to change. Um, and then, you know, but hopefully the answer is really, it's like a two or three person job that because Fangrass is such like, we're a small operation that like, it's, you know, upon me at the moment to like do pretty much solo. And so, you know, like it's whatever I'm trying to rein it in a little bit with some of how much I'm writing, but, uh, but the people who are like my North star, creatively people like you know david lynch and stuff like stuff that they preach is freedom and agency and that is absolutely a thing that like i'm given at our website as long as our shit is good and yeah based on what like people with teams tell me about my work it is eric thank you for joining me today remember folks you can email us baseball barbacast at gmail.com b-a-r-b-cast send prospect related emails we'll be doing this show a prospect focused episode every wednesday for at least the remainder of the off season mike farron will be back next week hold on to your pants as will jordan schusterman hopefully jordan will be back on friday once he takes his uh horse tranquilizer medicine um what was it that people were saying for covid ivermectin once Jordan gets ivermectin. His, once Jordan gets his dose of ivermectin, he'll be back on the pod. That's a joke. 
Eric, anything else you want to say or plug before we get out of here? Uh, I helped write a book, co-authored a book that came out in 2020 called Future Value. It's a snapshot of contemporary scouting. It was at the time. It was at the time. And a lot of the stuff that we predicted would happen in that book has, has already happened. And really COVID and the cuts coming out of it helped accelerate all that stuff. Um, and then everything else is just at Fangraphs, folks. Just go to Fangraphs. I wrote about um, international pro players earlier this week. So there's fresh scouting reports on the Yoshinobu Yamamoto's and Young Hu Lee's and many other, you know, some of the kickback guys, Eric Fetty, Eric Stout, Jacob Wagyu-Spack, and other Asian players who might, like, come over in future years. There's a whole bunch of fresh scouting reports on those dudes available over on the site now. Thank you, Eric. Thanks, Jake. Serious XM Podcasts.